being a recruiter is really interesting because I think everyone you talk to says that they enjoy helping people and they love being able to see someone get their dream job and get them in the role that they want. But it's such a fast moving game that you can't really focus on the candidates that much. You kind of take the perfect candidate that exists and introduce them to the, the company that wants them. Welcome back to the Career Therapy Podcast. My name is Martin McGovern, the founder and host of Career Therapy. Today, I'm really excited to bring a special conversation that I had with Bradford Brad Smith, who is a career coach and former recruiter in the tech space. And uh, Brad just has some really amazing insights to share around authenticity in the job search. How do you play this game, right? How do you play this recruiting game, this hiring game, this job search game in a way that is true to you, but also effective. So I hope you will stay tuned. And if you like this, I hope you will give us a big thumbs up on YouTube, subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes and share with anyone else, you know, going through the job search right now. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Brad. I'm excited today to talk about like, you know, the idea of authenticity in the job search. So I know, you know, there's a ton of stuff online about authenticity, but as career coaches, I feel like we get a really interesting window into people's worlds and, and there's a lot of anxiety around it. So in general, I'm just like really curious what your thoughts are on it. And this goes all the way back to that post that was on LinkedIn. I don't remember what it was at this point, but we were talking about authenticity and networking or something like that. Um, just generally speaking, like what's been going on on your side the past, you know, uh, few weeks uh, as you've been coaching? Anything interesting pop up in, in coaching calls lately? I mean, there's always new and weird stuff popping up. Um, like, and some of it's interesting for those in like that work with this kind of stuff, and some of it's not very interesting. Like right now, I'm helping um, someone negotiate their title. Um, and it's about whether they want to be a data scientist versus a data engineer. And like in the grand scheme of things, that really doesn't matter. Right. But in the longer run for what job that they want to have, it could potentially have an impact. So it's about how do we present a case for one title over another? Um, that's, I mean, that's just the first thing that's top of mind because I'm going through that conversation yeah. right now. Um, it's such an but, interesting one, especially when it comes to like... Um, negotiations, I feel like that's going back to our topic. I feel like that's a place where authenticity can really bite people. Cause I'm, I actually am chatting with someone right now who is, they have an offer, but they're contemplating the next offer. Like they have one that mm-hmm. might come and they're like, mm-hmm. should I tell them? Should I be, you know, honest and authentic? Should I tell the first company that I'm waiting on this other one? And it's like, Whoa, hold your horses. Like companies aren't telling you every single thing about what's going on on their end. They're not telling you about the budgets. They're not telling you about the, why the last person quit and all these different things. So I feel like there's this, like, we should almost mirror the authenticity that companies give us in a way. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? No, that's a great point to bring up because yeah. Does that authenticity imply that you're a complete open book? And, and you're absolutely right, because and I would probably give the same advice too. like, we're not going to tell the company everything that's going to make their decision easier, because we, we want to hold the cards that we have. And wow, I mean, yeah, we throw a curveball with negotiations, that is definitely a, 
I'd say it's less authentic in terms of the information you provide. I still think it can be authentic in terms of the approach. Um, and actually, you know, that's another conversation I was having with someone because uh, so often people want to take the easier direction with networking and do it over email. And I get a lot of questions like, hey, can you help me uh, write an email as I negotiate this offer? My answer is always no, because that's a terrible idea. <laughs> we need to talk to them over uh, over the phone or over Zoom or whatever it might be, because that way also we can get that authenticity going. Because I feel like people assume the worst tone when you negotiate. And so sometimes when it's like coming in like, hey, I, you know, after reviewing everything, let's say I want to add an extra 10K on top of this offer. They might just think, oh, who's this jerk asking for extra money? Who does this person think they are? Versus when you can get on the phone and you can be like, hey, I'm excited about this offer. I think it seems like you have a great company, a great team. I think this is what I can add. And as such, I want $10,000 on top of it. Then they realize, okay, this is a real human being coming to me. There's a real person trying to like make get uh, take make the best for themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that way it's received a little bit better. That's, um, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah, and I've, I've definitely seen it done both ways with, with email and in person. And usually with email, if you are going to go that route, it really is that like you have to be very careful because I've seen people totally blow it up. I, I saw one person, they were, they, they got a, a you know, a, a contract, they negotiated the contract, and then they went back and said, I thank you so much for, you know, meeting the demands of the negotiation, mm-hmm. but I need another week because I'm interviewing with another company. And the company got so upset that they rescinded the offer. And mm-hmm. again, I think maybe on the phone, probably, probably the whole approach was flawed, but maybe on the phone, they could have done a better job, but over email, they just kind of stepped in it, you know? And one of the things that if we are going to go that email route, really overemphasizing the excitement and almost downplaying the negotiation a bit. Um, One of the things I've seen work is like burying the lead rather than making the whole email about the money, asking like four or five different questions and just having the money one in there. Again, to your point of like, you're being authentic. You're asking for what you want to ask for. You're advocating for yourself. But at the same time, you understand that there's a dynamic here. And, And that's that really interesting piece, that dynamic right? The dynamic between the job seeker and the company, right? And that's where I'd love to dig in with you of just like, you know, what, how did, well, let's, let's rewind the clock. How did you get into coaching in the first place? And what were some of your experiences with the job search prior to becoming a coach? My foray into, into coaching started on the recruitment side of things. And I, my senior year of college, I started working for a very small startup. Um, I was involved with um, like helping with the pitch deck. So it started off basically, okay, can I get any sort of experience at a company? And, and this person who took me on, um, he, he actually, I think works at Hive Diversity Hiring now. He, he kind of showed me everything about the startup and he would take me to networking events. And when we were networking for our own startup, I enjoyed connecting people at those events. You know, I'd meet one software developer and I'd meet one project manager and it turns out they had similar interests. And I should be like, hey, you know, we can't help you with what's going on, but that person I talked to over there, they'd be great to talk to. And so going into graduation of college, we ended up losing the funding that we thought was a sure thing. And I couldn't afford the work for free. And identified one of those skills that I enjoyed, which was recruiting. So I went the recruiting route after college and 
that was how I learned a lot about just the employment game. I was a technical recruiter in LA and I worked on filling jobs, everything from IT help desk all the way up to like senior software developers. So I kind of saw the entire gambit of that. And being a recruiter is really interesting because I think everyone you talk to says that they enjoy helping people and they love being able to see someone get their dream job and get them in the role that they want. But it's such a fast moving game that you can't really focus on the candidates that much. You kind of take the perfect candidate that exists and introduce them to the, the company that wants them. And so uh, an opportunity with General Assembly popped up. Uh, there's time in between being a recruiter and going to General Assembly, but that, that's the most relevant, um, where I was able to take my recruiting knowledge and teach it to students at General Assembly to show them, hey, here's exactly what's going on with the hiring market. When you send out your applications, this is how people are reacting. And I've been with General Assembly for about two and a half years now. Um, and since then, I think I've helped about over 300 or so students uh, land their first jobs after uh, their course. That's crazy. And, and you know, as you're going through this, I, it, I love that sort of peek into the, I can't speak today, that peek into the recruiting world. Because um, I come from a marketing and advertising background, so I never got that recruiting experience. I was on the hiring side for quite a few jobs and, you know, I've gone through that process. But there is a real game to the recruitment process, as you put it. And so, I don't know, sometimes when I think about this authenticity piece, I just feel like it goes awry in the memes and the online advice and things like that, where, you know, it's like, bring your authentic self to work. And then, you know, there's the age old joke. Yeah. But what if your authentic self is an a-hole, right? <laughs> like, like there's a professional authenticity that I think people need to sort of find their sort of way of doing it. Right. It's a little different for everyone. Um, but with that recruiting game, the way that you put it there, you said, you know, there's so many people and it's so high such a high speeds and fast pace that you're as a recruiter you're able to find the right person for a job just because of the sheer numbers what could you tell us a little bit more about what is going on on the recruiter side and how that game looks a little bit yeah so um to really differentiate too there's typically two tracks of recruiting and there's either uh in-house which means um you know if I work for Google and I recruit for Google, I'm an in-house recruiter. Uh, but I worked for a third party or agency recruiter, which meant that, and they weren't one of our clients, but Google could hire us and we would recruit for them. And then typically they would be hired as contractors. So the person who would be working uh, for my company at Google, they would be like the Bradford Recruitment Agency, uh, you know, contractor, software developer, however you want to put it. So what goes on is all these companies, whether they're big, medium, very few small companies, they essentially release a job description. They say either, hey, we don't have the resources to search for this person, or this person is so hard to find, we can't find them. We're willing to pay you 15, 20, 30% of their first year salary if you can find the perfect candidate for us but it's usually not a one-to-one -one relationship. So if you take like one of the big entertainment studios in Los Angeles, they might go to five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 different agencies and say, hey, here's one job description, go. And all the different recruitment agencies and all the recruiters, 
then immediately start going to the job boards. They're immediately going to LinkedIn. They're immediately trying to go through resumes they've already read to find those perfect candidates and submit them to that company. Because if another company submits them before that recruiter does, you don't get paid. And essentially it's the first person to represent a candidate or represent a resume. They're the ones that get paid that person ultimately gets, gets found. So that's why it is so fast, because typically you're competing with a bunch of different people for one single job. And with that in mind, you know, people are always trying to think, well, how do I stand out? Right. And there's a, there's a lot to process in that phrase, just stand out, right? Like, do I make my resume really colorful and, and well-designed? Do I try to beat the robots? Like, you know, there's so much in there. I'm kind of curious, you know, with this, you know, perspective of authenticity, um, are recruiters looking for authenticity or are they looking for other criteria? What are the things that they're looking for when processing all this information? Authenticity. I'm not sure if people would use that word, but I think it very much is um, important there because as much as I just said that companies can open up jobs to recruiters because it's hard to find, but when you have a bunch of people looking, ultimately the people with the skill sets exist out there. And recruiters have been trained in such a way that they can usually find those needles in the haystack pretty quickly. And what really differentiates though is the personality behind the candidate. So. If I'm looking for a front-end developer, I can find a thousand candidates if I really wanted to that know JavaScript and CSS and HTML. But what's going to really differentiate is if I get them on the phone, are they self-aware? Are they genuine? Are they a pleasure to speak to? And typically what I tell my students is I can tell, I, or I could tell within the first 30 to seconds on the phone with somebody just in the way they responded the way they asked how I was doing, uh, I knew that I wanted to send them on to a client. However, if they were really cagey, if they gave me one word answers, they didn't seem very interested in the process, then it was harder for me to make a case because then they're just someone with the skill set. Um, and typically what would also pop up too is personality traits were effectively sellable. And you, you hate talking about people that way. But if someone could give me an anecdote about themselves that kind of showed their human side, then they would be uh, that much easier to sell to a client. And if I could go off one quick tangent. Um, Please there do. Was for, yeah, there was, for example, there was one woman who uh, had her black belt. And I can't remember which martial art it was specifically, but she had her black belt. And it was kind of one of those things. I didn't mention seriously as I was talking to my manager or sort of later client it was just offhand like oh yeah and by the way she's a black belt like oh a black belt that's a lot of work that's a lot of dedication that tells a lot tells me a lot about what she's able to do and it's so it's it's cases like that that can put you in a block and like or put you over the over the limit that people don't always consider and that's where the, the authenticity talk also it, it gets so muddy because also at the same time, I don't want everyone to go out and saying like, I'm a software developer and this is also my hobby because it's not always relevant, but it certainly can be beneficial if it comes up in conversation. And that's the difficulty, right? I think it's like, it's not just authenticity, it's timing, it's pacing, it's, it's knowing when to say it and when not to say it. And 
you know, the job search is so much about these communication skills that are not, you know, essential for every job in a way. Um, you know, a lot of developers became developers because they didn't want to have to think about all these social dynamics and social cues and social skills and things like that. And then they come to coaches and they go, well, how come I have to learn how to be a salesperson when I'm trying to get a coding job, right? And I try to always counter and say, well, salespeople still need to learn some basic finance, right? <laughs> and like, you know, there's all this stuff in there, but I'm curious when, when you come across someone who isn't naturally personable, who's maybe more shy or, you know, dealing with different communication issues that they might have uh, as a coach now flipping from the recruiter to the coach. What do you say to those folks? So there's two main strategies I use. Um, one, which I, I can tell uh, clients like more than others. And it also depends. Um, the first one is like, if we're in a world where the pandemic isn't a thing and we are like in the same room, then what I'm gonna do as we're talking I'm going to slowly inch my way away, myself away from the person to the point where there's significant distance between us. And this is what I do with my more shy or not so outspoken people, because it forces them to speak out towards me. And it, and it helps them sometimes find a voice that they didn't realize they had. A lot of people are taught that way. A lot of people are taught, taught to lay low and and not um oh my goodness I can't think of the word right now uh like eject <laughs> whatever the project right yeah not, project. not rock the boat yeah, yeah that, that would be, yeah, be bad they, they aren't taught to project and so that's kind of how I get them more to the projection side and but that's only a side of, that's only one part um the other one that you also touched upon though so they're not as personable and they don't like to talk and what I've typically found is someone or everyone has one thing that they love or are just so interested in that they could talk anyone's ear off if given the chance, or and maybe they haven't been given the chance, but there's something that they know. And I'm, I'm thinking of one person in particular who I was talking to was, was both very soft-spoken, didn't like to uh, talk a lot, but it turned out that he was a huge fan of universal monster movies. And so uh, when we finally, when I finally figured out that from questioning him, our conversations half the time just started being about those monster movies. And he would tell me everything he knew about those monster movies. He would tell me about uh, the cast, the characters, when they were made, where they were made. And that just got him comfortable with sharing. And that was a, an avenue we started building on. And so when I talked about networking with him, I didn't really focus too much on networking as a software developer too much. It was more like, hey, movie buffs are everywhere. Can you find these other movie buffs that exist out there? Can you find a Discord channel or a Slack channel or even like a Reddit thread or a channel where you can get invested in and just start practice talking to people? And so then that person through that practice was able to develop kind of their social skills and their networking abilities. And then that was able to later transition over to LinkedIn where we, you know, see it in a more formal fashion. I love that example. That's so on point, right? Because it's, it's going back to what you were saying before those like human sides of the stories, right? Um, I, I often say that a similar thing when people are talking about networking and, 
you know, they get really caught up. They're like, I went on a networking meeting and I didn't get a job. So I guess that didn't work. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It probably, it probably worked in a lot of different ways that you're just not seeing or giving yourself credit for. Uh, but one of the things that I always call out is like, you might spend 20 minutes of that networking call just talking about sports or weather or, you know, movies or like, like you said, that still is networking. And that still is, it, it counts toward the goal, right? You're getting more comfortable talking to professionals. You're getting more comfortable communicating in general. All these things kind of build your confidence as you go. And I had one student who, uh, he ended up uh, finding a whole lot of networking opportunities through his Clash of Clans Slack group. And I was like, never would have been on my radar of things to check out, yep. right? So I 100% back you up on that because I, I think that that's so important. And then I guess, you know, where can where can digging into your authenticity sometimes go wrong? What are What are some of the things that maybe you've seen people do where they overshare or go a little bit too far with things? I think, and it, it's hard to be super specific at the moment, because I'm only thinking generalities, but when someone identifies with maybe a more problematic subculture, um, and hmm, I think like the one that pops up in my head, and that's why I'm being so careful when I speak, is the very stereotypical like gamer, like the internet meme level gamer, there it's subcultures like that where there tends to be some sort of intrinsic, it's when they identify with something that can be seen as offensive to other people, um, not necessarily do the content, but it's just the way that they handle themselves. Um, and so those are things that I might encourage people to stay away from. Um, oh, I guess the easy one, or easy one I should have gone with are people who are very, uh, who identify strongly politically. And they feel like, you know, that's, that's who I am online. You go to my Twitter feed, that's all that it's filled up with. And that's one where I have to be like, hey, I get it. I can understand why you're passionate about this. But for the job search, that's probably just not the appropriate time to be digging into that. And I'd really encourage you to go literally any other direction. <laughs> yeah, literally any other direction, especially the past four or five years. Right. Uh, that's such an interesting one because I actually, I, I know someone who was part of a political group in college mm -hmm. and they were trying to get jobs after graduating and they were struggling. And I was like, look, you're applying for jobs in a city that is opposite of your political beliefs, maybe you need to remove that. Like that's where I think like authenticity, again, it's a professional authenticity. And as we move into a world where everything is getting blurred, right? Our online presence used to be, I remember when I was in college, um, we put up pictures on Facebook because Facebook had only been out for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was a freshman. I maybe it was only two, the second year of Facebook. That's how old I am. And I remember we put, you know, pictures from a party up and then later that week, um, the RAs put up a bunch of flyers in the hallways, and it was all of our pictures from these parties with smiley faces over our face, like stuck on our faces, and basically it was like Big Brother's watching you, and we were like, whoa, we didn't know that was happening, and uh, it taught me really early on that like whatever you put up, and you know, I still keep this in mind as I make podcasts and everything, it's like whatever you put up is up, like that's out there, and um and I think 
um, you know, as, as people are trying to sort of navigate their authenticity online and the, um, and, you know, all these websites encourage you to go to extremes, right? If you want to get engagement, you have to go to extremes. And so, you know, in those situations, it really is a tough, it's a tough line to walk, especially if someone is, you know, really political or something like that, because you can't really take things down either. So if you've been tweeting for four years, that's what's going to show up when you get Googled. And so, I don't know, I'm always thinking, and, and that just kind of brings me to a different idea, which is people say that they want to be authentic in the job search, but then you ask them basic questions about what their interests are and they can't answer them, right? Um, I'm always like, what, what industries are you interested in? And everyone's like, any industry, any job, I just want money, right? And just that phrase in and of itself, I'm sure you hear it every day of like, well, why do you want this job? I want this job because I want a paycheck. Why can't I just say that in the interview? What do you typically think? What goes through your head when you hear people say that? That's, yeah, that's always the the, the difficulty. Um, yeah, and I, I always love when it, someone comes back and they're like, well, how do I be authentic? And I guess that's the whole evidence of this, this conversation. It's It's true though. I guess your level of authenticity is also probably going to be related to uh, your tolerance for your job search and how long you're willing to work because you're, you're going to find that match eventually. But if you need that job in just a month or two, then we need to reduce that down a little bit. We all want a paycheck. I, I, I'm with you. I think I've seen posts about yours before. Like it is naive for anyone to say otherwise. And it's disingenuous for companies to assume that we want to work for any reason other than money. And I was actually on a panel earlier this week where a recruiter was talking about one of their red flags was when the candidate said that they just wanted to work for money, which is just so unfair in so many different ways. And what I encourage my folks to do is to think a little bit bigger picture and try and figure out what, their, what they enjoy in their personal lives that at all can be translated to the workforce. And I'm thinking also to, um, you brought up the software developer who classically is like, oh, I did this because I don't want to talk to people. I don't want to network, I just want to code. And I had a student a couple of years ago who is exactly that. He came from an industry where he had to do a lot of talking. He's like, I am so talked out. I'm done with this. Put me in a corner, give me my coding and I am done and I am happy. And instead what we were able to do was find out that actually what he really enjoyed doing on top of this was um, was creating basically dumb websites is the nicest way I can put this. We, we think about this job because um, he was the same way. I don't care. I just want a paycheck. And we're like, okay, how about this? We're looking for a job where you maybe have some free time where you're not going to hundred percent be loaded down all the time. So you can invest in your own personal projects that keep you sane, like these dumb websites that you enjoy. And so when he was interviewing with companies, inevitably people would be like, oh yeah, like we don't, we don't drown you in work, right? And so he'd be able to pull out like, okay, great. Like I do appreciate a company where I can pursue my own projects as well. And eventually that's basically the company that he, he, he ended up at. And it's funny because he and I just connected and he switched companies and he lost that. And he's like, oh no, why'd I give that up? Oh, so that's a very long winded way for me to say that there is probably some hidden way that we can, you know, manipulate a perk of the job to be something that you enjoy. 
I think you and I, we have it easy that we can get away with saying that we like to help people. And that's pretty genuine and we mm -hmm. get away with it. But when it comes to maybe more technically inclined roles, it's harder to do. Yeah, it really is. And, and I try to get people out of the, one of the, I think, pitfalls of this whole authenticity conversation is that people start to get really focused on themselves, yeah. right? And personal development is great. Self-help is great. All this stuff is good. But there is sort of a point where it, if you're like, a, a lot of these things are supposed to be done slowly throughout your life, right? Like you're supposed to just slowly get better as a person throughout your life. Um, but when, when we kind of dive into a field of personal growth, like during a job search and everything you read is saying, build a personal brand, tell your story, be authentic. If you're not showing up, like I, I saw something earlier today, a meme that said, um, share your mental health you know, issues with the world because it might help someone. Mm -hmm. And I go, only if you're ready to, yeah. don't go just blasting out your mental health issues yeah. when you're not ready. It's going to be a real issue. Um, and so I find that to be so interesting of like, because all this messaging is out there, it almost screws with people because then they think every message they say, send needs to represent their current emotional state. And everything that they say needs to represent their current emotional state. And one of the things that I keep trying to remind people is like your current emotional state, whether it's imposter syndrome, uh, insecurities, just general overwhelm, or maybe you've been doing the job search for a year and you're really angry and frustrated. Those are not the truth. Those are one of many truths, right? The same way as if you look at like, why did you leave your past job? most people will focus on that last day, the firing or the layoff or the disagreement with the person or whatever it was when it's like you had two, three, five years of great experiences and all you're going to do is focus on that one piece. And so I'm curious, like as you're coaching people through their stories, how do you help them reframe? What are, what are maybe some examples of how you've helped people reframe their stories so that, you know, I, I, I truly don't believe that what we think is our authentic self, we, we don't, we're not smart enough to know who we are, right? And so I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are there. One of the places I really like to start, because I get this frequently, is I'm not good at anything, which we have to hope and assume if you've been working any sort of job for more than a year, you were probably good at something because that's why you were getting paid to do work. Um, but where I, I try and break it down to is I ask him like, was there any Martin work? You know, I, like I almost think if you watch Always Sunny, like there's an entire episode called Charlie work, but I think, is there any Martin work? Is there anything where if there's an issue in the office issue around you were the point person, you know, whether that was you could get the printer to work or you were the one that was really organized so you could help buy like the office snacks. What was that kind of work? And I go, oh yeah, they would ask me to do this. And they would ask me to do this. And they would ask me to do this. And that would kind of bring to the forefront those those particular moments when they were kind of the star, even if it was something minor. And that is a really good way of also just getting like the resume fodder too. Cause they're like, oh, I didn't do anything in my job. I just did using your time. I just did marketing, right? I'm like, well, focus on the personal interactions with one-on-one -on -one people. Cause that's where you're gonna probably have had your biggest impact. So that's, that's generally the first place that I start. Um, remind me the, the original question though, 
Um, it was about, you know, people think that the truth is whatever they're feeling most insecure about mm -hmm. that day, um, rather than seeing that bigger picture, like you mentioned mm -hmm. before, and, and really trying to coach people through this, this uh, realization that just because you're feeling a certain way doesn't mean that that's the only truth. Gotcha. Okay. So yeah, going back and like avoiding that myopia or myopia, myopia, however you get it. Um, I'm kind of a broken record about this actually. And I'll let my students know um, the biggest and best way I can do is, is having a daily journal, having something that you hold on and you track your daily work week over week or day over day over day. Uh, even if it's just dumping down three or four bullet points that you did during a day, um, that's immensely helpful with me. It's been immensely with my students because when I have those crappy days, like, oh, I am bad at what I do or I can't do anything right or nothing's going my way, I have proof to the contrary. And, you know, so much of what makes you successful in that job search is that kind of maintenance work because also you're never or you're very rarely getting positive reinforcement, getting positive feedback. And we're going back to talking about networking. If you're networking appropriately, you're still going to get uh, shot down time after time, after time, after time. So you have to kind of create those opportunities uh, for positive reinforcement and success. And that means you create it yourself. That's what you have to do. And I also get it too. Hearing someone give that advice when you're feeling bad or feeling low, it sounds like bull. But when you're when you start out from more of a neutral space and you create that that um, you're creating that evidence for a rainier day, and that's when it can really make a difference. I like that you called out how it sort of sounds to the job seeker too. Um, one of the adjustments that I've made over the past few years is, uh, you know, I feel like so much again what's online, and I rail against <laughs> what's online a lot, but um, I'm also contributing to it. So you know, there's the the weirdness there, but. Um, what is so funny is like, you know, I'm, I'm very, at, there was a point in time maybe where I was trying to get people to actually enjoy the job search. <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm almost at a point where I'm like, I'm just trying to get you to be neutral about the job search, not even enjoy it. Like, I'm just trying to get you not miserable about the job search every day. And I find that to be a funny way to look at it. And then, um, you know, for each person, you know, really sort of leaning into those skills that that they do bring to the table. Um, you know, with cybersecurity people, I think one of the most fun things is like, there's something called social engineering, where you call places up and you try and hack them, hack the people in the company. I'm like, hack the job search, like just social engineer the hell out of this. And, yeah. and that's pretty funny to them, because it's like, it's both authentic and inauthentic, right? Because on the one hand, they're hacking, which is super authentic to them. But on the other hand, they're kind of pretending in a way. Uh, they're not like making up false identities or anything. But uh, I told someone to, she, she was kind of a, a little bit more of like, uh, I guess she would describe herself as like crunchy granola or kind of hippie. And she got an interview at IBM and she goes, well, I don't want to work at IBM. That's stuffy. And I go, well, pretend, like pretend you're hacking IBM. What would you say? She goes, oh, I know exactly what I would say. And then through the process of doing it, she discovered, wait, I actually like this. It's like a very innovative position and like blah, blah, blah. And she ended up getting the job. But this idea of authenticity, kind of, I feel like now I'm at the point where I've said authenticity so many times on this podcast, it's starting to sound funny. But um, 
there's this point that we get to where you are sort of playing everything like a game, right? It's, you know, when you play Settlers of Catan or chess or, or Scattergories or whatever the heck you want to play, you're not going to just be like, hey, here's all my plans and here's all my answers and, you know, put it all in front of them. There's this poker face that we kind of have to have in the job search. And I think a lot of people struggle with that, um, probably because they've had experiences where they were too fake and ended up in bad jobs or, you know, where they didn't stand up for themselves. I'm kind of, I'm curious, where, where have you seen sort of the poker face go right? How have you seen people be able to navigate these, like the, the game of the job search in a healthy way? So like what comes to my mind to, when you're talking about your, your country granola client is, you know, what, what, what is IBM going to allow her to do outside of the job? Like, you know, is, is, if it's IBM, hopefully they're paying pretty okay. And that means that she can afford, you know, a better nature vacation, whatever that might be. And that's, that I guess is how I help people get comfortable put on the camouflage. They know what they're fighting for beyond just the job. In terms of someone who I can think of that really played that poker face well, that's a hard one, actually. It's not necessarily that they were like making things up, but they just knew, they knew how to represent themselves and their work in the way that the company wanted to hear it, right? Because that's that whole sales message piece to it. Yeah. Because um, I find that companies, you know, we sit there and we read these job descriptions, and maybe this is where we can take the question next, mm -hmm. because you people will look at these job descriptions and they'll get really dismayed by them right? The, you need three jobs for an entry level job, three, three years of experience for an entry level job. Well, how do I get an entry level job if you won't give me an entry level job to get the experience for the entry level job? And I think that that loop and exposing that loop is, is helpful for folks because companies, I, 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 try to help, I try to help people realize that companies are not being genuine and honest to the hundredth and tenth degree with yep. you. And so we almost need to be able to give ourselves the same, I don't know, like leeway or, or permission to treat companies the way that they treat us in a way. And I'm curious if you've sort of had any experiences or seen anything along those lines of like almost matching the company's energy in a way. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that is 100%. I mean, that, that's how we change from getting zero responses to our resume or getting zero responses to our, um, to our networking attempts is we have to adjust them to what the company wants to be seeing, what they want to be saying. Um, I kind of lose my mind whenever I see Agile or Scrum or any of these project management methodologies as a must have. You must have two years experience working in this methodology, otherwise you're not a good candidate. And I pretty much tell all my people, watch a 30 minute uh, video on YouTube of someone explaining Agile and Scrum and you are good to go. Put that on your resume whenever they ask you, tell them, yep, I can uh, match that, uh, that project management methodology, I can succeed in that because it's nothing that can't be taught. And I think that's probably one of the, the things I always take away with my students is um, when you look into the, into the resume and see it as something that can be taught, should be taught, give yourself that credit 
look at it so at least you can define it and you know what it is and get that on your resume. I'm not telling them like, don't put down a project where you've used it. That's not what I want you to go ahead and do. But I want to say, yeah, I do have enough knowledge to be able to talk about this topic at hand. Um, and especially, goodness, when it comes to like jobs in very traditional tech companies or in the startup, startup world, typically the more jargony the job description, the more allowance I give the seekers like, yeah, just tell them what they want to hear because they're not looking for a real candidate anyways. Yeah, yeah, they're Frankensteining those job descriptions and, and they don't even know what they want. And I like the way you phrase that, right? It's not just put it on there for the sake of putting it on there. It's go watch some videos, go go actually get some experience with it and then include it because a lot of times what what I think job seekers are thinking is I need to have done this professionally in the past. I need to have been paid to do this for it to count. And that's not true. It's, it's, I need to know that in this role, I could do it with Google and with the training and with the team and, and so on and so forth. Um, that happens in cybersecurity a lot. They're like, well, I haven't gotten the certification yet. I'm like, but you will have it by the time you get that job. So speak as though, you know, you're going to have it and maybe put expected date if you have to. But um, there's so many different things in there where, you know, as soon as you kind of hit the one the, the one thing that pops up, another pops up and you're playing whack-a-mole the whole time. Um, but this brings us to a, a kind of an interesting area of the job search that um, I, don't, I don't hear talked about very much. And, you know, only, only go as far as you want to go with this because I'm stepping into, into waters uncharted here. But I get, I've been getting questions lately about... Um, specifically from folks who are maybe self-taught or who don't have traditional education backgrounds and things like that, where they start asking, like, you know, they, they keep hitting the same roadblocks over and over again. And they say, well, how much, how much should, you know, between underplaying your skills, overplaying your skills, and then stepping into that world of people that lie on resumes, have you seen anything like egregious out there that you're like, please don't do this? Or have you seen any like gray areas that you're like, eh, you could probably get away with a few things there? I've got one story that comes to my mind from when I was a recruiter, um, but then probably more of a, a, a helpful gray, gray area story. But the one that comes to my mind, um, when I was recruiting, there was a candidate for a job and I'll just say, spoiler alert, he got the job. But on his resume, he had the college plus the degree that he got. And a lot of people know, like, even if you don't graduate, you can still put the college, you'll say what you majored in. But if you put degree, that really strongly implies that you got that, that degree. And I, even as a recruiter, even if that degree is listed, you're trained, you verify that again. And so I remember asking this person, like, so, hey, I see... You got your degree from the school and they replied yep yep i finished with that school that was those were his words i finished with that school and i figured well i asked him directly so that has to mean yes and then before his interview i was taking him to breakfast and we were going over um you know kind of psyching him up for the interview he's a great candidate but still wasn't feeling for, uh, great about it and i was like hey like you know you've got your degree from this school like uh, you know, the hiring manager is also from that school. It's going to go great. And he goes, oh, no, I don't have my degree from that school. 
I just said I was finished. And I was like, oh, like I thought I verified this. Like, yeah, I said I finished. I personally was finished with that school, oh, but I no. never got my degree. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that is that is really being pedantic there. Um, so I, I actually ended up uh, firing off a message to the to my manager and the client being like, hey, before you talk to this guy, I want you to know he doesn't have this degree that we said that he has. You know, I kind of fell on the sword there a little bit. So this person ended up getting the job. Um, did is not in the job for very long. It did not end up being a good fit. So that tells you where lying can get you. It can get you in a job that doesn't actually end up really working out. The gray area is, is um, representing boot camp work on your resume. And I'm not sure if you see this or you talk very much, but how do you put that down? Is that work experience? Is it volunteer experience? Do you say anything? Do you try and pass it off as real experience? Um, and from back when I was recruiting, this was when um, a lot of boot camps were getting really big. So this is, you know, talking about Sabio and General Assembly and Flatiron and all these different schools. And I would always pass up on the candidates that listed their boot camp work as real work. If they told me this was part of a boot camp, I did this as a boot camp, that was fine with me and I was all for it. But I had known just from my own managers and the clients we worked with, they saw that as enough of a misrepresentation that they weren't interested in that person, working with that person. So when I talk with my students, I always let them know, you put somewhere on that resume, you make it known, hey, this was not paid professional work. This was through a boot camp. Some people, they'll still be like, eh, I want to roll the dice because it does pay off. Sometimes I will fully admit that it helps you get eyes and people might take the work more seriously if they think it's paid professional work. But a lot of times it can blow up in your face. And I've seen it blow up in people's faces after I've told them not to do it, but I've also seen the payoff. So that's also kind of that authenticity question, right? Do you want to gamble? Do you want to roll that? Or do you want to represent the work exactly as it was done? Yeah. And I'm just, I'm so curious about these stories of things not going right. I'm curious, are there any other either coaching or recruiting stories that you've seen out there that, um, you know, where, where do people, well, let's, let's focus maybe on the recruiting side. Like where do people go wrong when, when you're looking at just massive amounts of this stuff, what are some of the really big red flags that stand out that people can really kind of, you know, imprint in their mind as they listen today? Oh, I think, so one of the, maybe the hot takes is we hear the advice often, like, jazz up your resume, really personalize them. This is probably another conversation that could be an entire hour um, because recruiters are looking at a thousand resumes a day. And so you need to stand out. And that can be true to an extent. You use a little bit of a different color. Maybe your headings are a little bit different. You use like, you know, I don't know, bars to separate your sections. Cool. That stuff that can work. The people who go off the rails and send put the information in a very non-traditional format that actually ends up making the recruiter's job a little bit harder because they're they are pretty automatic they know where the information is supposed to be they know where to track for it they know where to look for it and so if you make them work harder than they need to that can be a little bit uh that can be a downside so there's always wiggle room with it, uh, I want to say again, add a pop of color if you like, but don't spend 
all week perfecting an artistic masterpiece because it's not going to really benefit. Um, the other one that that ends up hurting, and I, I think you know this is not um, that novel a concept, but it's when you throw way too much information at me. If you know every single one of your positions that you're representing on a resume or every project you have has five or more bullet points, I don't even know where to start. Really, I try and heavily weight, uh, weigh stuff at the beginning of your, or sorry, at the most recent part of your career, so the top of the resume, and anything like beyond the first page, which you can totally go on the two pages, that's fine, but anything beyond the first page, I certainly pay a lot less attention to, so that's one of the cases that has to be out there too. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything big out there. Oh, also telling me how you use uh, your technology is so, so important. Like a very common one I'll see is like a list of technical skills, like here are all my technical skills, and then here's a job that I had, and then one bullet point within that job that says, here are all those technical skills again. I need to see exactly how you use those technical skills, otherwise you haven't done anything for me. Effectively, like those bullet points have to be proof of your work, and that makes me making your, your case as a recruiter so much easier. I really love those three things. So just to reiterate those, you don't need to have an artistic masterpiece as your resume. And I would even extend that to uh, some other areas like your personal website and stuff. I work with so many, and I'm sure you do too, UX people and developers and designers, and um, especially with the resume, not necessary. As a matter of fact, now that robots are reading them first, usually very unnecessary. Um, and, you know, I feel for those people because I used to be a designer. And so I'm always like, I, I look back at my old resumes and I cringe so hard. And then I'm like, oh, if only, if only that mattered. Um, uh, the next thing you said here is don't throw too much information at the recruiter as well. I love that. And I really do, I do think that everything we're saying here, people view a lot of these techniques as inauthentic because in their mind, authenticity means just being myself. But in the same way that when, a, when you're building a website, you're building it for someone else, or when you're designing a marketing campaign, you're designing it for the person who's going to consume it. Or if you're so fortunate to make art or something, you're designing it for the person who's going to buy it. Like the job search isn't about you at the end of the day. It's about the person who's looking at what you're submitting. And so the more we can do to just better communicate, not be inauthentic, but better communicate what is true. I think the better and everything that you're listing out here really, really applies. Um, are there any last thoughts that you have around, you know, ways that people can can stand out? Like what we've mentioned a couple of things that don't help. What's maybe one or two things that do that does help? Despite its rising popularity, and um, you know, especially in, in this particular audience who might be watching this kind of content you might see a lot of people with really robust LinkedIn profiles, but it's still very rare for people to actually fill out their LinkedIn profiles. So if you're already doing that, you're ahead of the game. Um, if you can actually show me the work that you're capable of doing on your LinkedIn, if you can link out to any extra work that you have done, any extra projects, that is also going to be really beneficial. Um, the other things that are gonna uh, stand out to me, 
I mean, it's probably again another one you don't want to hear, but is is following up with the recruiters on LinkedIn after you apply, like every single time. It's it's it is not going to get a yes on your resume, but it will most likely get your resume looked at. And I guess the one thing I really want to show is like, I think when it comes to networking or reaching out to people, we feel like we're going to bother someone. But when it comes to a recruiter who has a page or has a stack of a thousand resumes, you know, if someone reaches out and it's, you know, Jada Smith and I can look in, I can look at her resume real quick and be like, nope, she's not a right fit. At least we got your resume looked at. And really, if anything, that's the goal there. So those are the two biggest things when it, when it comes to being authentic and being out there, I suppose. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's perfect. I really appreciate that. And Brad, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. This has been incredibly insightful. And I really hope that people will take these ideas and put them into practice. Um, if folks want to you know, get in touch with you or see more of what you're doing, where should they go? Uh, you can check me out on my LinkedIn. Uh, it's in slash Smith A. Bradford. Uh, should be pretty easy to find. Got a big GA cog on it. So yeah, nice. please feel free to reach out, send me a message. Cool. And we'll link that all below here. So um, Brad, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Martin. Good seeing you. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode today. I really appreciate your support of what we're building here at Career Therapy as we continue to try and explore the hidden side of modern work and tell some of the stories that maybe don't get enough light shed on them. If you enjoyed what you listened to today, I hope you will leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, subscribe to this wherever you're listening or watching on YouTube, Spotify, etc. And uh, share this with some friends who you know are going through similar experiences and looking to build their career and, and gain some insights along the way. Again, thank you so much for stopping by, and I wish you the best. I'll see you on the next episode.